Welcome to the Media Navigators podcast brought to you by the World Media Group. My name is Belinda Barker and I'm the Chief Executive. Today's podcast is going to have a slightly different format. I'm going to step back and join the audience and as we're going to be joined by three amazing editors and journalists, all of them at the pinnacle of their careers, in a conversation talking about how and why they got into journalism, what motivates them, and um, around the roles and responsibilities of of telling truthful, honest, well-researched stories. And the bond of trust that is built up between um, journalism brands um, such as the members of, of the World Media Group. And with that, I'm going to hand you over to Anne McElvoy, who is the executive editor for The Economist and will be leading this conversation. Anne, welcome. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Belinda. I'm delighted to be in the chair for this conversation, but I see it as a, a conversation between myself um, and my my two uh, guests, co-conspirators joining us today, uh, Spria Srivastava, who is with Insider. She is a senior business journalist and editor there. So welcome to you, Spria. Thank you, Anne. Thank you very much. And next uh, to her on uh, my screen is Yasmin Sahan from The Atlantic, who is based in London, covering Europe, and a particular emphasis uh, on populism and resurgent nationalisms, what they might mean in the context of today. Hi. And as nobody knows what an executive editor is, uh, I thought I would just briefly explain what I do. Uh, I'm on the senior editorial leadership team here at The Economist. So I look after strategy and what we should be doing next in terms of development and help the editor sort of on that. And I also host a show called The Economist Asks with uh, lots of very good guests, we like to think, which is a chat show format. And I do that for Economist podcasts. But I'm going to start by asking, I think I'll give Spria first. Spria, tell us a bit about why you're in journalism at all and the route that took you there. Yeah, it's very interesting. And thank you for having me on this um, on this podcast. I think journalism happened to me by accident. Um, and I always enjoyed writing. Um, I remember growing up, um, I one of the fav- best things or one of my favorite things used to be writing a diary or writing uh, you know, stories and writing like really long scripted plays. Um, but I also was very interested in sort of the foreign policy side of things, so politics and understanding how things happen in the international world order. Um, I, was, I was brought up in India. That's where I was raised. And I figured out that very quickly that the media in India was very, very inward looking. It was very domestic news that was focused. And I always wanted to read more about what's happening outside of India. Um, the two, the two uh, things met when there was a job ad- uh, opportunity out there for an internship in a foreign policy magazine. And I realized that I like writing and I like news. Let me just give this a try. I was at uni still trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Wasn't very clear. So I took this particular opportunity. It was a six-month um, internship with a 
very senior journalist in India. And within the first couple of weeks, I realized that this is my strength. This is what I like doing. I love writing. I love reading about what's going on. And then I love to find sources who I could then pick up the phone and ask what's next. That sort of, there was something that about that entire experience that within the first few weeks, I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, and then the next step from that was... Um, applying for um, a, a formal, uh, you know, sort of a degree in journalism. So I came to London in 2008, September, um, to do a master's in international journalism at City University. Funnily, I landed in London just three days before the financial crisis, before Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed, as you all know. I had no idea what was going on at that time in the world. I was very focused on political journalism, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, but I started understanding that one, there was a need for more and more financial journalists. Newsrooms were really hungry for people who understood finance, for them to be able to break down these big concepts of quantitative easing. And the second thing was I felt suddenly the entire focus of political journalism was being viewed through the lens of finance. So countries like the US, who had a lot of money, were able to um, bail out their banks very quickly. But the European Union, for instance, did not have a single supervisory board. So all of the e European banks sort of felt behind. And that's when you realized who has the power. And I got very interested in that. I um, started doing internships at various places. Um, at CNBC to start with. And a lot of it was um, also sort of just um, so self-taught. So I did a lot of learning on my own. Um, that, so that's where it is. So hence the business background. We might talk a little bit more about how you apply it now as we are in, in your job as we, we go along. But Yasmin, in the same vein, what, what brought you into what used to be called the rough old trade? <laughs> um, well, it's a very good question. And quite like Spriha, um, I kind of stumbled into journalism as well. We have a pretty similar background in that way. Mine also started, uh, my love of journalism, I should say, also started at university. Um, I was um, at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. I was studying international relations fresh on campus as a freshman. And um, I saw that the school newspaper was hiring for writers. Um, I kind of just applied as a fluke. Um, I knew that I enjoyed writing. Um, I really enjoyed writing about international affairs. Not really the topic that you would expect a student newspaper to write about, but actually our op-ed section was quite quite good at tackling sort of, you know, any any news of the day. But yeah, I ended up, um, you know, becoming a news writer, became a news editor by the next semester, went up to managing editor. Needless to, needless to say, I spent far more time in that newsroom than I probably spent in class, but um, it was probably the best informal journalism education I could have asked for. And um, I was very lucky because at the end of my time there, I applied for an editorial fellowship at The Atlantic, which is where I am now. And I started my career there um, in Washington, D.C. at their main um, kind of headquarters. Um, and I joined the Atlantic in 2016, which of course was kind of a big banner year in terms of big shifts um, around the world. We had the election of Donald Trump. Uh, we of course had the Brexit referendum here in the UK, uh, the election of Emmanuel Macron in France. Um, and that was sort of how I got my inroads into covering Europe. Um, I covered the French election and also the sort of Burkini saga, if anyone remembers that from 2016, 2017. Um, and uh, yeah, and that was kind of the, the beginning of what would be a really great adventure across the Atlantic. The London Bureau um, just happened to open towards the end of my fellowship. So they sent me here and I've, I've been here ever since. Great. Well, it's like generational shift in, in my 
the case because I actually like yes I mean I was a student journalist I was on Charwell the Oxford University newspaper I was editor of that I have to say it was in the late 80s that was not the 1880s that can sometimes feel that way and thereafter I joined the Times as a, a trainee London Times and I ended up having the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, I'm a German specialist the Balkan Wars Many other periphery wars, which are periphery wars as we called them then to, to Russia rather impolitely. But as we can see uh, by the terrible events in Ukraine, they have a, a habit of recurring uh, and growing. And that's exactly the 30 something year the span, I suppose, that I'm looking at now as I, I look at Ukraine coverage. So I did all of that. And then I became an executive and a political columnist for 20 years uh, the Evening Standard in the UK and then moved to The Economist a good decade ago, first to be policy editor, subsequently then to run our audio outfit, and then to do the job that I now do, which is a, a mix of audio, but also uh, some strategy work. So it's quite interesting, I think, from all of us. Obviously, my uh, guests will have a, a, oh, they've got more headspace than I have, headroom, I should say, ahead of them in terms of their careers. But you can pivot quite quickly in journalism. And I think that brings us, if I can come back to you, Spria, to, I think people get very interested and a bit confused as to how people who start out often writing, like you, they turn up at, uh, your case, at City University is super bright graduates you all want to write many of you want to change the world or at least influence it through your writing and then when we check in you've become these grandly titled editors what gives what took you that way uh, that's a really good question um and often that i'm asked um because yes you're right you know i still love writing i still um steal some time from the day to sit down and write and just sort of because that that's that's what we all want to do i think it's somewhere down the line i really enjoyed assigning i really also enjoyed sort of brainstorming story ideas um and um i think like whenever there would be a big event, I would step up in the newsroom and be, and you know I would sort of help the editor to say we should look at a particular story from this point of view and that that point of view. Can we? Can I help you with sources? Can I take a first look at your story? So I think I always enjoyed that. I never really thought I would be an editor. I thought you know it's, it's part of being a journalist. And then a job opportunity came up at CNBC where my editor actually asked me to apply for that job. And he said, I think you'll be great at being the deputy editor. Why don't you apply for the for that job? And I'm until then, I never thought that I could be an editor. I thought, you know, I'm, I love being a, being a reporter. Um, and I went ahead and applied for that job and I got it. Um, so I was the deputy uh, bureau chief for, the, for, for that particular, for CNBC, for the international division. And I really felt that this is what I want to do because one, you get to learn so much by editing other, other people's pieces. Um, I've primarily been a financial journalist, but uh, when I would be editing sports stories, I know I, I, I still don't understand football and I'm being very honest about it. But when I started editing sports pieces to, uh, to, and that's when I understood how things work, how football can actually, um, you know, sort of impact economics as well among countries. How we talk about economics quite a lot, um, and then just sort of being able to help some junior reporters and coach and mentor. And that's something I've always enjoyed. And that's a big part of my current role as well. So I think um, it's probably just understanding what your strengths are. And in my case, I realized that my strengths are, um, you know, sort of assigning and brainstorming and um, coaching and mentoring. And I just leaned into my strengths a bit more. Okay. So that's fascinating. And absolutely, I think you know it yourself, don't you? It's, sometimes you have to be both in your career, but to sort of decide where your strength lies or where you feel more comfortable and perhaps is is the best advice. I think some people almost resist it because they think, well, 
I came in to be a star columnist. It's, you know, why do I want to be a deputy editor or assistant editor editor on the news desk? I would say to people, there are so many routes through journalism that take the one that's in front of you that you feel comfortable with. You know, it's la vie s'arrange, as the French say. Life arranges itself. Um, so don't get too stuck on one route. Um, what do you think, Yasmin? I mean, I'm interested. You have what looks at a paper like a completely plum job you sit in London but you have the right to roam in in Europe which is always definitely something to aspire to not least because it really annoys people in the other European bureaus Um, but you have that right and you obviously I'm joking because you do sort out who's going to do what story and and you look particularly at shifts and disruptions in politics which sometimes come in the bucket called populism and, and nationalism how do you decide what you want to cover? What's the process that you would go through with your editors? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. Um, you know, it it really, I mean, it, part of the challenge, I think, of, of covering populism and nationalism, which I think, as you just mentioned, um, you know, I, I wrote a piece a few years ago about how populism had kind of just become a catch-all phrase for things that we don't like. Um, and so a big challenge of my beat was to really try to develop a proper kind of almost academic understanding of the term and the phenomenon and and um, and nationalism as well. Um, I would probably just to briefly summarize it, I think populism is best understood as sort of a uh, a, a style of politics, um, not so much an ideology, but rather a way of speaking, I mean, a way of framing things. Um, and if, in populism's case, it's framing things as, you know, the, the people, the, the quote unquote real people versus an other, an elite of some kind. And, you know, we've seen that dynamic on the left and on the right in countries around the world. So in, in terms of my job, I basically give myself the task of trying to identify when I see that trend or trends in countries around the world um, in, in 2017. Obviously, we saw a lot of it in Europe. Um, however, you know, we also see it in places like India, like Brazil, like Turkey. Um, so the, the challenge there is that I kind of have to forge many beats, <laughs> um, really try to develop um, as much of an understanding as I can of these different countries. Um, as you mentioned, not always being in them, not always getting to visit them, but to try to develop relationships there, to speak with people who know these places a lot better than I do, and to try to draw upon the trends that I'm seeing around the world to help kind of explain what's happening, um, to point to the similarities. Um, you know, someone in Britain may kind of understand the role that nationalism um, or even sort of populist elements like, you know, the the British people versus the Brussels, the bureaucrats in Brussels, you know, that sort of dynamic there. Not all populisms are the same, I should mention, but um, or nationalisms. Um, but, you know, to, to kind of help people in the States with Donald Trump, how can they see what's happening in Brazil with Bolsonaro and kind of understand both the key differences, but also the similarities with what they're seeing in their country. So often, yeah, I'll just be keeping tabs on these countries that I'm interested in, where I've seen these trends, uh, flag it with my editor. Um, and like Spira said, we have conversations. We talk about, you know, what's most interesting. Um, and, and what really drew me to the Atlantic when I applied as a, as a senior in university was um, I loved that it answered the questions that I didn't know I had. And so a lot of times I try to trust my gut intuition that when I have a question that I think is interesting, that I hope that our readers 
perhaps share that curiosity and maybe I can answer that question for them. So that's usually what guides me. But also the news guides me. I mean, I've been like many people covering Ukraine, um, which obviously, you know, there, there could be some elements of nationalism there, particularly with regard to Russia and even Ukrainian nationalism. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily fall strictly within the beat. But, you know, I, I, I go where the news goes. So. That's interesting as you talk about judgment and that sense of kind of, you know, using your own judgment, sometimes also your gut to decide which stories you should pursue, because obviously every story you pursue, you're probably not giving time to something else you could just as well be doing. And I wondered, particularly as we're talking here in the context in which the shift to digital journalism is obviously on everyone's minds. I've just returned from researching digital journalism in Germany, where the pivot from newsstand to digital is just quite a remarkable graph. And it is widening very fast and replenishes those coming to brands tend to be coming now more through the digital routes. So that changes journalism. And it certainly has changed journalism since I was first around in it uh, around 1989, 90. I mean, the internet was sort of barely born. So how much do you think that we need to change what we do with that digital component in mind? And Sphere, does it change the way that you make decisions? Because, of course, you can track the data so acutely now as to what is being read, listened to, consumed, what people make of it, or where they simply pass. And is that on your mind? Yeah, um, it's it's always on our minds. And um, it's changed so much. Journalism has changed so much. Uh, I mean, I've been um, in the industry for a little over 15 years now, and it's really changed in the way we look at news, we approach news, we break down news. And as Yasmin said, I mean, of course, news leads us. We follow the news. Um but how do we break down that news for our readers is something that we where we use data quite a lot. So to give you an example, if you're writing about if the Fed decides to raise interest rates, we will, of course, write about the Fed raising interest rates. But what are we, what we are also interested in doing is breaking that concept down to how that impacts um, a common person, how that impacts the food that is being served on their table. So we are going to try and use the big economic concepts, but also sort of try and bridge that gap between that economic concept concept and that and our reader. Um, and I think that is what has changed quite a lot. And why that has changed is because like, uh, like you've mentioned, we use data to track now. So if we see, we constantly engage with our readers. So if we see that our readers are engaging with us on content that have, that are explainers, that are educating um, them about a particular topic, then we want to do more of that because clearly there's an appetite for something like that. Um, we'll still continue to, we still continue to follow the news flow. We will still put news flow at the top of everything else. Um, but how we cover that news has changed um, a little bit over the over a period of time. And I think it's for the good. I think it's good that we are able to now engage with our audiences to know exactly what our audiences uh, care about. And they're changing. The, the dynamics of audience is also changing. The demographics keep changing. So um, I, 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 think it's, I think it's for the good. Uh, Yasmin, do you think about who your reader is? And you see, the slight challenge I, I would have to what Spear has laid out and um, also the beneficiary of having a lot of information. Certainly, you know, we take our feedback from readers very seriously and we track who's reading what. But we will always have a commitment to global coverage and that's not going to change. But there is, I think, something that does creep on, which is an awareness if you've got certain areas that are not getting that traffic, as we now call it in digital, that maybe you have to push that bit harder to get that piece 
through? And to what extent do you think, well, this is going to land well with my audience and this, maybe it's going to be a heavier lift? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, in terms of thinking about who my audience is, um, you know, I know that the Atlantic is read around the world. I know that the large proportion of, of that readership comes from North America, uh, obviously the United States and Canada. Um, but our third largest readership is actually here in the UK, hence our pivot to this side of the Atlantic. Um, but I think generally speaking, I when I'm writing, I try to think, I, I try to make the story as accessible as possible to anyone anywhere around the world. And, and that means knowing that, you know, obviously we're an American magazine. I'm not going to be using British spelling or anything like that. Um, you know, Britishisms typically get pulled out of my copy. Um, I've lived here too long because, you know, suddenly I'm trying to think of examples, but they're not coming through. Calling football and soccer and those switching those two um, has, has actually surprisingly been more of a challenge than I anticipated it to be. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, I, I think for me, I try to when I write my stories, especially when they come to like complicated topics, such as global affairs and, and sort of what's happening, you know, to understand that our readers aren't necessarily going to be ensconced in those particular countries and places and that the, the story needs to feel accessible to anyone, um, but also not so basic so that someone who's, you know, a keen follower of French politics, say, would feel like that piece isn't for them. Um, you know, we have, there's that concept in journalism uh, called the explanatory comma, um, which of course I'm sure you, uh, everyone here in, in this Zoom chat is familiar with, um, where you try to um, basically, like, you know, a quick aside to sort of explain a concept that may not be totally understood to the like to the average reader. Um, but you want to do it in a way, right, where someone reads this and they feel like it's still for them. Say you're an expert on this. You know, you may come to a piece and you're like, gosh, this is really like bare bones. This isn't for me. I never want readers to feel that way. So um, that's kind of, yeah, with, with my readership, I do try to, to kind of be broad-minded, I guess, in that way. I mean, it helps, of course, that I hear from readers a, a lot of the time, mostly well, sometimes via Twitter, and that's not always the most constructive place, but often via email. The, the writer, the readers, I should say, who, um, who are kind enough to write in, they're not always kind in their emails, but they do tend to be quite constructive, and I and I do try to respond to them all. Um, but, you know, like, like a lot of journalists, I also keep track on how my stories perform, and I kind of try to look and see what, um, you know, stories perform better than others. You know, for example, I find that trend pieces, particularly as it related to the pandemic, comparing and contrasting how different countries um, attempted to do different things, um, those tend to actually get a lot of interest. Um, and, and while I do keep that in mind, it informs sort of how I identify stories um, to the point that you made, Anne, about, you know, the stories that perhaps aren't as covered or don't get as much interest. You know, the one thing that I really appreciated about my time in the Atlantic is that, you know, we don't, obviously every journalism outlet wants high readership, but I've never felt the need to chase clicks. You know, if we think a story is important on merit, we're going to do it. Um, and, and, and that I think is, is kind of really gratifying. I mean, obviously uh, the thing that I do find a little frustrating in my job is sometimes I I will work on a piece for days or days, if not weeks, loads of reporting. It's a labor of love. I put it out there and it just doesn't get that much. I mean, you know, there's a decent readership, but not much. Compare it to the quick hit I do one day covering a topic I just kind of know off the back, back of my hand. I, I don't really need to talk to many people. Boom is read by, it feels like it's read by everyone and my mother. And that's like, uh, it just, it really depends. But, um, you know, I, I try not to, um, 
you know, then only do those pieces and not do the ones that you kind of pour your soul into, because I think those pieces are really important. And frankly, I think they're why a lot of journalists get into journalism. I think they're all excellent points that you're both, both making. And I would say it's always really hard when people talk about quality media to say that, oh, it seems to have the implication somebody else isn't quality media. I've actually worked across, I've worked in the middle market. I've been deputy editor of the London Evening Standard, which is a very broad reach. The Economist is obviously you know, is a sort of different proposition, but both, I think, rightly would call themselves quality. And I think the difference is exactly, I think, Yasmin, you, know, you gave us a great example there which is will you still cover something because you believe your editors believe in it and your writers believe in it and you've taken an editorial decision. Otherwise, you're in a different world, which will be a business model, but it can be simply a click-chasing model or it can possibly be looking at other metrics for success. And to me, what you get if you are advertising with a quality media product or reading it or if you're grazing it you may not like it you might well go to another one but you are getting an edited experience I mean that's sort of rightly or wrongly I think that's what that's what you're paying for because that is the 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 difference that there have been conversations about what you're covering you you didn't just sort of have a look at the uh, the chart or the algorithm that morning and go do you know what? Today I'm thinking yes means peace. Um, so let's talk a bit about formats because they are changing. And certainly in my lifetime as a writer, first writer, then writer, broadcaster, now podcast host, I do a lot of other broadcast um, in the UK. But at the same time, I consider myself at heart a print journalist. And if you give me long form, I'm very, very happy. Most of us like a lot of words. So I'm interested to hear from both of you, Ms. Brea, both as an editor, but also your personal pleasures. What are the formats that you like most? And I think, you know, you can also say for any you don't really like or you find is not just not for you. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I'm thinking about it now. I mean, I think uh, my, uh, my um, comfort area is a long form um, and I, I absolutely love writing long forms. Um, but I I also work in a very fast paced newsroom. I've always worked in a very fast paced newsroom, which uh, where spot news is sort of the 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 way of the day, as they say, and um, it's about getting news as quickly out as possible. So at CNBC as well, for instance, it was about was it, we were trying to produce as much news as possible in a day at Insider as well. There are two desks that I oversee that are very strong, fast-paced news desks. But having said that, the story that said behind the paywall at Insider, the, the stories that are uh, we call the prime prime content, they're all sort of a lot more research, a lot more deep dives, and a lot more sort of investigation scoops, and so, and so, so, so on and so forth, and like features as well, which automatically falls into um, sometimes the, the long-form side of things that I am talking about. And I, I think uh, personally, um, as a journalist, I've always found... Um, a lot more sort of happiness to be able to write and research along from the sort of the the talking to sources, the taking your time, the sort of being able to think about a story, like really take a step back and think about a story and, you know, take, take some time to write that. But I do... I don't see a lot of that in the newsrooms these days. I do think that um, there is a lot of scope for it, but the the packaging of news has changed a lot and there is a lot more focus on getting news out as quickly as possible, packaging 
continues into smaller, um, you know, it, there's a number of reasons for it. One, of course, is the user experience as well. Like if you look at readers and how they're engaging, again, um, you know, where do people's interests start to drop? I think people, a lot of readers prefer smaller news pieces. Um, and that's why, so we have a rule as well about not going above a certain word count if it's a spot news story. If it's anything more than that, then of course, it, you know, you have to come and speak to your editor and brainstorm that story idea. And then eventually that gets published. But for any spot news, we don't go above 500 words, so to speak. So um, I think that that's, that feels, I feel like that's changed quite a lot as well over the, in terms of how readers are consuming news. Um, the pattern is very different on the weekend though. I think weekend people like that escapism. They like to take a step back. They like to read longer pieces. There is a lot more appetite for long form. So um, we keep a lot of our long form pieces for weekends as well. Um, but through the weekday, I feel people are like very busy. They don't have the time. So they just want to, they want you to package the news for them very quickly and be able to present it to them. Um, but but personally, I think I'm a big fan of the long form. There's been much about you. I mean, the, the Atlantic is one of the, the big long form, also kind of enhanced long form. It's sort of looked a lot more at its formats, I think, uh, in recent years, linked them up also to podcasting. What do you like doing best? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, I'm I'm a huge lover of, of writing and, and also reading long form. Um, you know, I often have to remind myself that, um, you know, I think one of the challenges of working at a place like the Atlantic, I obviously read a lot of news from many, many outlets, but I have to remind myself that I was not hired to read the Atlantic because sometimes there'll be certain days where I look at the homepage and all I want to do is just read what my colleagues have written. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the Atlantic has always traditionally been a place for analysis, for long form. I mean, kind of to Spreha's point, um, you know, some publications, they're, they're quick with the news, they're telling their readers what's happened when it's happened. I think The Atlantic knows that it isn't necessarily the place that people will go to for that first news hit, but it is where they will go to for that sort of second day or even the first day. You know, we try to be quick with our new, with, with our stories, but, um, you know, that sort of analysis started trying to like, okay, we already know what's happened. Now we want to understand why. Um, so I've always really fancied that kind of more analytical but still accessible type of journalism. And, you know, not every piece needs to be a 10,000 word essay that we certainly, you can find those at the Atlantic, especially in our, in our magazine issues, which are always available online as well. Um, you know, but for me, typically, I think a piece um, tends to be at around like 1200 words. So, you know, I tend to go for sort of that middle, that middle range is kind of the usual sort of story, not too short, but also not too long. It's kind of, you know, I think a pretty, easy amount for a reader to to kind of bite off um, and chew on for five, six minutes before they move on to the next thing. Um, that said, I mean, I don't, I do, I've done a few podcasts for the Atlantic and I do some outside of the Atlantic. Um, I'm, I'm a regular on the Bunker podcast, which is sort of an independent British podcast, typically talking about kind of the news of the day. Um, I do love podcasts um, and I do, especially as a news consumer, I love listening to podcasts. Um, I love the New York Times. I mean, obviously they have their daily um their, their daily, the, I feel like this is almost wrong. Upping, <laughs> I was like, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to talk about other outlets beyond. But anyway, um, I love, I love the New York Times. I, I love, I listen to a lot of podcasts and regularly, and that was sort of what I did on my commute. Um, but even you know, some the New York Times is coming up as an example here. But you know, I know increasingly a lot of publications do this. Well, they'll have their long reads be read, sort of in the form of a podcast. So, say you want to have your weekend long read, but you want to do it while you're on a walk, then you can sort of just listen to that. And I always really enjoyed that. The Atlantic has a couple of great podcasts, The Experiment being one of them, where that's just kind of the perfect way 
to tell a story, which you could do in the form of print or digital, but um, it's just such an enjoyable experience for the reader or for the listener, I should say, to be able to hear the different voices, to kind of hear the process that the journalists went through covering that story, how their thinking changed along the way. I just find it to be a completely immersive and enjoyable experience. I think that's, you know, as I say, having led audio here for a lot of years, you know, what we've tried to do is add value there. I have to say, when it comes to reading out stories, your most of your reader feedback is going to be, do they like the voice of the person reading you the story? And I would arrive sometimes to find someone saying, I really can't understand this voice because it's got a Scottish accent. And then the next one would say, you need more diversity of accents in your uh, your reading. And then someone else would say, yeah, so but is it, are there enough American voices? And then the fourth email would say, too many American voices, and nice to say. Thank you so much for all of your feedback and then desperately try to make a, a team put it together. But that brings us to uh, diversity and diversity in the media. Spriha, tell me a bit about that. The media rightly, along with all other big institutions in, in society, perhaps a bit more in the spotlight on this issue than previously. Who is getting into it? Who is getting on well with in it? Different forms of diversity and the potential there for how do you satisfy so many people who have different views on what diversity is? What's your own experience been on this? Yeah, um, uh, I think, uh, I, I mean, I came to this country 15 years ago um, and I, like I said, I was raised in India. I was uh, raised in, you know, in a very in a in a, in a in a place where media was very sort of viewed very differently um you know in india when i came here to study journalism and i started working or actually started finding work to start with um it wasn't easy because you know we um one i i felt like i did not fit in um and i wasn't i wasn't able to understand um sort of the the fleet street uh, networking drinks as they say like i you know i would go in and not really know who to talk to um it also felt for like i'm a person of color so being a person of color it also felt slightly um unfriendly in, in many instances a bit hostile but eventually I got around to it I sort of made, started making friends I thankfully had a mentor who was really really helpful being able to sort of explain to me how you know how to go about finding jobs how to go about finding internships who to speak with um but otherwise it's a bit daunting initially it's a bit daunting to be able to take your first step in the world of journalism in a place that's absolutely new to you where you have no no friends you've got no idea how things work um, and also English was not my first language. And that is something that was reminded uh, to me a number of times while I was applying for jobs, um, which initially at that point of time, I thought, yeah, actually, they're right. English is not my first language. But later on, it dawned upon me that um, even if English was not my first language, I am a journalist. I do write English um, stories. I have uh, you know, being taught uh, in, in, as, in English as medium of instruction. So it is being, I mean, I'm being discriminated just because English is not my first language. So um, I think having that self-awareness over a period of time really helped. And I think something that I do quite a lot is in my role um, is mentor a number of journalists, mentor a number of young journalists. We at Insider also have a very strong focus on diversity and inclusion. So when we are hiring as well, we go out and about as wide as the talent pool could be. We don't rush to make those decisions. Personally, I speak at a number of events where I can talk about diversity in journalism. And hopefully I can help and inspire more and more young men and women of color who can join journalism and not feel daunted at the initial um, challenge that is you know, sort of thrown upon them. And I'm so glad that I was able to navigate those through those challenges because at one point I actually thought, should I just go back to India and maybe 
work there if I'm not really getting a chance to work here. Um, but then I thought, no, hang on, let me try and fi- figure out a way to do this. Um, I'm sure that there are lots of other, and I, I did see there were lots of other journalists um, of color who, who, who are so successful in this country. So I said, they must have done something right. So I need to figure out what they did. And, you know, thankfully they inspired me. So, um, yeah, I mean, in short, I think it's, I'm I'm hoping that, you know, I'm able to inspire more people and I try and do as much as I can from my part. But my company is also like really helping in doing that. So together we are able to sort of really be out there um, and, you know, everything that we do, whether it's reporting or writing or hiring, recruitment, training, everything through the de- uh, through the lens of DEI, um, which is a big win, um, you know, for me. Yasmin, what's your experience been? And uh, a bit like, you know, just an interesting question, isn't it? How much we are driven by what we see around us and how much we decide, it's reassess, you thought of going back to it, you thought, oh, you know, I can sort of practice here if I, I want to. And I think it is a mixture. You will find role models, but you also have to find some strength in yourself to say, this is what I'm going to do. And if someone is really excluding me, I, I will find a way to break through that. And I will challenge that and I'll get support to challenge it, which I think now in most institutions is probably a bit, I don't want to say it's easier, but I think it's more accessible than it was. Uh, and I don't know if she has that feeling as well. I think looking back, there was a sense of, oh, well, that would be being a bit awkward squad to raise something and say, I feel I might have been discriminated against, would have been, oh, you know, it's just not worth the hassle. I hope that we now consider it um, worth the effort, worth the hassle. But what's your own experience been? Yeah, um, you know, like Spriha, I was very lucky to have amazing mentorship um, early on. I think this industry um, can be quite daunting in, in a lot of ways, um, uh, both in terms of just getting your foot in the door, but but also, you know, this is, I think we've seen, especially over the last few years, that, you know, sometimes that this industry doesn't always feel the most secure. And I think it's something that journalists talk about a lot. Um, I think a lot of, of publications, um, including The Atlantic, I mean, thankfully, you know, um, Diversity inclusion is something that we talk about a lot. I mean, I think newsrooms are really waking up to the fact that actually having that diversity in all of its forms um, is 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 a huge asset to a newsroom. It means that you're seeing and understanding stories in a different way, and you're able to deliver that that nuance and and those different views to your reader. Um, you know, I. For example, I mean, it's it's Ramadan currently. Um, I was I was raised um, in a Palestinian Muslim family. Um, you know, I'm able. I'm not the only person who can write about Ramadan, of course, and I, and I don't necessarily write about it every year. But a couple of years ago, I did write a piece about, um, you know, what it's like to experience Ramadan in a pandemic and how it sort of changed the way we engage with this really important month. Um, and I was able to kind of insert a bit of myself in that way, not in a way that was, you know, um, made the story about me or anything like that I really don't like doing that but but I think it you know it, it does provide the reader with, with something I think that's very valuable and, and I think that that newsrooms prioritizing that I think is, is incredibly important um but beyond just you know um the kind of traditional forms of diversity we think of in terms of kind of sex and gender um you um your your ethnic background um etc I think socioeconomic diversity is also something that's incredibly important and I know um particularly for kind of those new uh the schemes for early career journalists whether it's internship internships or fellowships um you know those are incredible opportunities i mean it's how i got my job uh, but they're not always the most accessible um especially 
to people who are coming from lower income backgrounds. Um, and, you know, I know that this is something that thankfully I know the Atlantic uh, really took on board um, when it kind of was considering how much it was paying its fellows, um, you know, and, but, you know, I have friends who, who started in journalism too, and we were all kind of talking about, okay, we want to do these amazing jobs, but we also want to afford to live in cities like New York and New York City and Washington, D.C. And, and London, how do you do that? Um, so I think newsrooms kind of prioritizing, making sure that even their young journalists who are just starting um, are making a living wage where, you know, you don't have to choose between following your passion, but also being able to afford it. Because, um, you know, what, what happens if these, you know, with free internships or, or, or unpaid fellowships or things like that is that, you know, people might love the opportunity. It might be amazing. They might get it. But they don't necessarily have the ability to rely on their family uh, for, for that extra support and things like that. So I think that's really important. It's it's refreshing to see that newsrooms are taking uh, taking that into consideration. I think obviously we can see more of it, but yeah. I think we're getting towards the end of our time and, and I can't resist because I think we should, one should always uh, treat the narrative with other journalists as if we were in a bar. And I'm wondering whose expenses tab this one's going to go on. So uh, what we might find ourselves talking about if we just got to know each other over a glass of something nice would be, what's the best story we've ever worked on? And it doesn't have to be the most significant for geopolitics or for your publication, but one we really thought this career takes me to a place or to a story, to an experience I otherwise wouldn't have been able to have, and I'm going to tell my grandchildren about it until they say, oh, stop it, Grandma. Um, yeah, let's get the other way. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, a number of stories, but one that comes to mind, and I won't really name the um, the company here, but because the story never got published, unfortunately. Um, but I got very close to a massive scoop, and I had to spike it for some other reasons. Um, but I got to know from some sources about some wrongdoing at a bank. And um, I just kept chasing the lead and um, just kept chasing for a really long time. And then I, you know, one thing led to the other. And then one thing led to the other. Um, I found myself in like this web of a lot of sort of information that was being thrown at me. Um, and this was just myself. Um, and I kept telling my editor about this. And I said, this is going to be a really big story. Um, and the only reason we couldn't publish it is because all of the, so so we had all of the uh, sources um, anonymous. Nobody wanted to go on the record. Um, and there was a lot of legal element that was getting into the story. It was contradictory every, every now and then. But so we decided to sort of leave the story. And then the Financial Times went ahead and published it uh, two days later. It's pretty much the same story. And I remember sitting there with, with the newspaper being very upset about this particular story because I thought this was my story. Um, we didn't publish it. I still haven't written in draft somewhere. Um, but I think this is something that I'm going to tell my grandchildren about that if you have an instinct, if there is a hunch and you know that you're you you can do it and you know just trust yourself and go ahead and do it don't worry about the consequences don't you know but still go ahead and chase it because i would not have felt so bad that day looking at that story being published by another media outlet um so that's my lesson there actually it's a very good lesson yes push ahead with your instinct and your great research please consult your lawyers <laughs> before you do that uh or make sure that your editors have consulted your lawyers because mistakes can be expensive um Yes, Yasmin, what have you? You've had a wonderful ticket to write, haven't you, around Europe, transatlantic. What's the story that you like, go back to in your head? This thing, that's been my yeah, story I'm really proud to have been able to take part in. Oh, gosh. I mean, 
it's kind of like choosing your favorite child. Um, but um, no, I, to be honest, one of the pieces I'm probably looking back and most proud of um, was actually a piece I, I, rep- I reported on mostly during the lockdown, which was kind of somewhat limiting. I think the lockdown kind of almost just opened. You could kind of do a few things. And um, this was sort of a long read on um, the Uyghurs who are what it means to protect your your culture um, from destruction and from afar. So uh, for this piece, I, I spoke to, to Uyghurs living here in the UK. I, I visited my first Uyghur restaurant. And I, I think one of the reasons the story popped into my head was remembering the delicious noodles that I got to eat um, over the course of this reporting, purely for research, of course. Um, but, you know, then also spoke to to Uyghurs um, as far afield as Turkey, France, the United States. Um, so it was a piece that both allowed me to do some on the ground reporting here in the UK, but um, it also enabled me to, you know, there, there were just so many different layers in terms of, you know, also understanding like, you know, even Sephardic Jewry and like Jewry and, um, you know, keeping the Ladino language alive, like that came into the piece. So there were a lot of different elements. It was just, I got to speak to so many people and it was just, um, yeah, it just felt like it felt like an important story. It was one of those pieces where I didn't actually it did perform very well, but I didn't actually care if <laughs> if if that many people. I mean, I obviously want people to read the pieces, but even if it didn't perform that well in terms of metrics, I think I would have been very proud that the story was done because I felt like it told a really important story. Um, and if I get to enjoy a wonderful culture while doing it, so be it. <laughs> Yes, a bit of wonderful culture while doing it, and, and preferably a, a story where the cuisine is good uh, is also a help. That said, I spent lots of years in war zones where that wasn't wasn't really the priority. I think probably mine would have to be. I think if you've covered the fall of the Berlin Wall, you do think, well, you know, I've ha- I've had my uh, seat at the the the, the ring side of, of history, so I would go with. That I found war reporting difficult. You get better at it. You get you know technically better at it, and it's important. So I enjoyed that. And I thought, just to end on a, on a light note, I was sitting in the office one day. I think it was deputy editor at uh, Independent or Independent on Sunday at the time, and someone said, "You know, there's a guy in in New York. This is now a few years ago, so uh, inflation. Consider this. He's offering. He's a British guy, and he cuts hair in New York, and he's thousand dollar haircut man." Do you want to go? Well, I mean, has anyone ever said hell yes faster? I thought this is the reward for having uh, having all that, that time with no access to hairdressers uh, face down in a ditch uh, was that I got to have the thousand dollar haircut. And what can I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it was a good haircut. And on that note of stories that we've done that changed the world, I will pass you back to Belinda for some final thoughts. Thank you so much. I I am in awe of all three of you. I've I've been very lucky to work on the commercial side of of this industry o- over a number of years, but I, I'm I've always always just wished that I could I could be one of you and sitting listening to it was just fascinating so I'd like to thank all three of you um, for sharing some insights into what it is um, to be the creators of some of the most world's most engaging media because those media just simply wouldn't exist um, without you Um, so thank you so much all three Um, I hope you'll join us next time for our next podcast. Um, We're going to be joined by colleagues from 
the Washington Post and Politico. Uh, and we're going to be talking about influencing the influencers. Um, if you haven't already um, subscribed to our podcast, please do so. And um, also worth going to have a look on our website because we do all sorts of um, other uh, briefing events um, and um, activities, news. So that's www.worldmediagroup.com. Um, and with that, um, ladies, again, thank you very much and hope to see you again soon. Thank you. The World Media Group is an alliance of the world's leading international media organisations that connects brands with highly engaged, influential audiences in the context of trusted and renowned journalism. For further information, please go to our website, World hyphen media hyphen group dot com. Thank you.